welcome to Clothes Wars, the podcast that hasn't worn a bodycon dress since, I'm going to say, going to homecoming at another school in ninth grade. And we all know that going to homecoming or prom at another school was like the ultimate aspirational accomplishment. <laughs> it implied you were more cosmopolitan, more international, or at least more inter-school district-ical. <laughs> anyway, I remember the brand was Zumzum. It was purple, very bodycon, and my grandma bought it for me at the Macy's outlet for like 30 bucks. That was the last time. It's been only humongous diaphanous silhouettes since then, <laughs> or something like that. I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 151, the first episode of 2023. I'm back after taking a few weeks off to rest, although, spoiler, of course I didn't rest. I still had to work. And I also had a vacation in Japan with Dustin, and it was great. That is like an understatement. It was amazing. It was incredible. It was all the superlative adjectives. And if you're interested in hearing more about my trip, you should go listen to episode 69 of The Department, where I talk about the trends I observed while I was there, including a huge expansion of secondhand shopping, which... Got me so excited. Got me so excited for the potential here in the United States. I could I could talk about that for like three more hours. <laughs> but I also shared some stories from my trip. So go check that out. I did share it in the Clothes Horse feed last week, just so all of you who didn't know about the department could know about it. Because I was recently informed that I do not do a good enough job of letting you know that I have another podcast. So Here I am telling you that I do a second podcast with my friend Kim. It's called The Department, and it's all about trends and how they define the world around us. It's about all kinds of trends, social, food, style, economic, and so much more. And it's super educational to work on, and I enjoy it. And someday when I start getting invited to a lot of parties again, I am going to have so many great facts to share. So actually, maybe I won't get invited to any parties. We'll see. Anyway, enough about that. I am so excited to get this year started with a very special guest, writer Rachel Greenlee. I stumbled upon Rachel in late November after the algorithm served me her New York Times opinion piece. This is the reality of America's fast fashion addiction. It explains so eloquently what Rachel learned about fast fashion while working a seasonal warehouse job processing returns for a big online retailer. I would urge you to hit pause now and read her piece before listening to this episode. It's not a super long read. It's a really enjoyable read. (laughs) Go read it. I think you will get much more value out of this episode if you have read that essay first. So if you haven't, hit pause and go give it a read right now. The day I discovered this essay, I read it about half a dozen times because I knew it was going to be transformative for so many people who had never before considered the words fast and fashion as a pair, as a phrase, as a thing. You may recall back then, this was like right after Black Friday, right around it, that I also posted about it on Instagram. Anyway, that Instagram post connected me with Rachel, and I was beyond delighted when she agreed to be a guest on Close Horse. I am so excited for all of you to meet her today. Before we jump into that, I just wanted to give a tiny taste of the direction I'm planning for Close Horse in this new year. If you follow the Close Horse account closely on Instagram, you have already heard me talk about this, but I'm going to give a lot more detail here. It is the earth 
Logic Plan. The Earth Logic Plan was developed by world-renowned researchers and professors Kate Fletcher and Matilda Tom, and it is designed with two undeniable facts about our current situation. One, communities are coming together frequently online, but also IRL. And these communities are developing out of the knowledge that we can change the world and shape the future we want if we all work together to make it happen. That's what the slow fashion community is, right? And ultimately, the slow fashion community is just one part of a larger community, a larger movement focused on environmental and social justice. Just so many people out there who have had the realization that we have to change the course we're on. And these are all people, and that includes all of you, that includes me, that are committed to making that change happen now, or at least starting the change right now, right? These things are gonna take time, but they never start if we don't take the time. Which brings me to number two. The time is now, all caps now, to make these changes. We can no longer procrastinate. We can't wait for some unspecified date in the future when it will be time to work on saving the planet. The work has to start immediately. And I I am like, yes, can we please do this? Because, you know, some of you who listen to Close Horse are older than me, and some of you who listen to Close Horse are younger than me. Those of us who are on the older end of that age group of the Close Horse community know that we have been having conversations about the environment, about fossil fuels, about climate change, about drought, around economic inequality, about so many other things for this entire century. Yet here it is, 2023, and it feels like getting people mobilized to take action has just begun. But we're going to do it. We're going to start doing it right now. You know, through the specific lens of clothing, which is ostensibly what Clothes Horse is about, although I like to think it's about so much more. But when we talk about clothing, we know some pretty hard facts about it that must change immediately. Like, for example, I love to pull this one out because it never becomes less shocking. On average, Americans buy about 70 new articles of clothing each year. If you're listening and you're saying a bit smugly, perhaps, well, I'm Canadian or British, so I clearly don't buy 70 new articles of clothing each year. I want to assure you that your fellow citizens are buying a similar amount of new clothing on average. This is not exclusively an American problem. If you're shocked by that number, that 70 number, or you haven't bought new clothes in years, remember that this is an average. That means if you bought no new clothes last year, someone else bought 140 garments. You and your best friend both bought zero, then theoretically, I mean, this is all about averages, someone out there bought 210, right? That's how we got to 70. Over the past 15 years, the amount of clothing produced each year has doubled, while the amount of time we actually wear a new item has dropped by 40%. I actually thought it was going to be an even bigger drop. So 40% still bad, but I mean, that's almost half, right? Basically, it's saying we're making twice as much clothing. We're wearing it half as long. I think that's a, if you don't want to have to memorize all of those percentages, I think you can say that and you can say that knowing that that is true. 
we know by now that this overconsumption is having a profound negative impact on our planet and its people, it's exhausting resources, it's consuming water, it's releasing an incredible amount of carbon, and it impacts the lives of millions and millions of workers around the world, along with the people who just happen to live in the areas around the factories and facilities that are part of the apparel supply chain. We need to change this immediately. We cannot continue to kick the can down the road for some day when it will be, I don't know, easier, more palatable, more convenient. I'm not sure why we're waiting. I think we're waiting because so many of us feel as if we are such a minor part of this planet that we cannot make an impact. And you know that I believe otherwise. We're gonna talk about that so many more times this year, that yes, what you do matters, what I do matters, what everybody we know does matters, and it matters most when we all do it together. Okay, now that we know why Earth Logic is so important right now, what is it? Well, Earth Logic puts nature, our planet, and its people first. This is a departure from growth logic, which has been the status quo for decades. And that approach, it's what we've been living in. It focuses on profits and constant economic growth. And that's both on a business level and a governmental level. Even our elected leaders march towards an economic growth model. That means each year countries plan to be more productive and make and sell more stuff and fuel more consumer spending. That number has to increase every year or suddenly a a country is in a recession. And that's a scary place to be when your entire economy is based on consumption. Rachel and I are going to talk about this growth model, this growth logic, of a little bit from a business perspective in today's conversation. But ultimately, the goal of any large business, retailer, brand, etc., out there right now is growth year over year over year. That means that this year we have to do more sales than we did last year, and next year we have to do more sales than we did this year, and on and on. When I say it out loud, it is preposterous because why would we expect infinite growth in anything? There always should be a ceiling, but that's the way just about any industry works. And as a person working within the fashion industry for so long, it was just assumed by me, by my team, by everyone, that I would have to sell more stuff next year at a higher profit because it wasn't just a growth in sales. It was also a growth in profitability. That would mean that more stuff would have to be made each year and would have to be cheaper than it was last year. And next year, it would have to be even cheaper than it was this year. And in little tiny increments, it doesn't feel doesn't feel that extreme, but when you spread that expansion in sales and that reduction in cost over 20 to 30 years, Now you understand why clothes are cheaper now than they were in the 90s, even though everything else is a lot more expensive. And I can even say in the span of my career, the clothes we bought, they cost us less, at least on the retailer side, not the customer facing side per se, but we were definitely paying less 10 years into my career than we were at the beginning because they had to be more profitable. We had to squeeze the factories more. We had to cut the fabric costs. We had to cut the details, anything else we could do. 
to make those clothes come in the door at a higher profit. Now, the Earth Logic plan first arrived in 2020, but I just learned about it in late 2022 as people are still talking about it. It's a pretty dense report in its first incarnation. It's super academic. And honestly, I think it's just been taking people this long to digest and reflect on it. And I think it also hasn't gotten the amplification that it needs. So I'm here to be a part of that. Here's what I love about Earth Logic. While so many conversations about slow fashion, sustainable fashion, all of that focus on shopping, like where to shop, where not to shop, brands you should support, brands you shouldn't support, it's all about shopping, right? Earth Logic shifts away from the where to buy, what to buy, and it says buy less, like a lot less. Earth Logic has a bold target for us buy 75% less brand new clothing. If we use the 70 garments per year as a jumping off point, that means buying about 18 brand new garments this year and no more than that. Anything else has to be secondhand or upcycled. For a lot of people, maybe not you, maybe you, That's a really serious change. But as Matilda Tom, one of the creators of Earth Logic, said, for many years we have been dressing like we are somehow separate from the Earth. But our fate is tied to the health of the planet, and this means we need to change. And you know what? It's true. Greenwashing campaigns, and to be honest, many brands in the so called sustainable space offer us the illusion that we can continue to buy 70 brand new articles of clothing each year without consuming resources or having a negative impact on our planet. And it's just not true. We just don't need that much brand new stuff in our lives, even if it feels like we do. But cutting our consumption of brand new clothing by 75%, that feels like a Mount Everest size task. Yet I fully believe that we can get there really fast, seriously, very fast, and still have a great quality of life. We can still feel like we are looking our best. We can feel confident. We can feel happy and fulfilled and all of the things that we want to feel when we buy new clothing. If you're already there, like you haven't bought new clothes since high school or you only shop secondhand 100% of the time or you sew all of your clothing, congratulations. That's amazing. But that doesn't mean you get to pat yourself on the back and smugly sit the rest of this out. Nope. The work is just beginning. We have to help others get there too. This means sharing our expertise, educating those around us. It means leading by example, because yes, you, me, all of us, we are leaders in this space. It means having some conversations with our friends and family that might feel awkward. It means stuffing away any judgmental tendencies we might have when we are confronted with habits that might be different from ours and approaching others with open ears and compassion. It means recognizing that for far too long, Knowledge and skills have been a privilege rather than a given. 
Kate Fletcher, one of the other creators of EarthLogic, said, the EarthLogic plan is about rooting fashion in creativity, community, curiosity, courage, and care. It's about caring so much about saving this planet that we commit to changing fashion. We are serious about saving our beautiful planet and future generations. We need to be brave and commit to changing fashion. Every action counts and there is no time to waste. That's why the focus of this year's content, everything clothes horse-ish, will be adapting earth logic into our wardrobes and our lives. So here's my commitment to all of you. One, I will continue to unpack the reasons we overconsume and how we can change our behaviors around shopping and clothing. Our first audio essay opportunity for this year will be about retail therapy and how shopping became a coping mechanism for many of us. We'll be dissecting how shopping became a hobby, a social activity, and a means of self-care all rolled into one. Two, I will work to shift the narrative from what and where to buy to why you don't need to buy. I will share more ideas for expressing ourselves creatively with the clothing we already own, and we'll debunk the myths and fashion rules that keep us shopping. Number three, I will feature content that helps all of us make our clothing and our other stuff last longer, including laundry advice, amending resources, just recorded three hours of laundry talk Friday night coming up in the coming weeks. Get ready for that. And number four, I will continue to explore the secondhand first way of life. You know that I am always very skeptical of black and white thinking. You know, like this is right, this is wrong. Because unfortunately, we're all living within a system where nothing is purely good. And the purely bad certainly does exist. But even if we started digging into the layers there, like if we were like an archaeologist of good and battery, those aren't words. That's not a job. We would find somewhere along the way someone who had good intentions. And as I've moved through life and I've gotten older and I've experienced more things and I've really taken the time to reflect on what I know and what I have yet to learn, I have recognized that most of the answers are found in the gray areas. And if we want to find them, we have to get comfortable with the realization that the answer is complicated. Nothing is simple, but we're going to keep working, working together to find those solutions. That's a really great transition. It's almost as if I planned it that way into my conversation with Rachel, whose current mission is diving deeper and deeper into those gray areas. So let's meet Rachel. All right, Rachel, welcome to Close Horse. Would you please introduce yourself to everyone? Yeah, absolutely, Amanda, and really good to be here. Uh, I am Rachel Greenlee, and I was a corporate Yahoo for (laughs) many years, working for a number um, of corporations in marketing and sales. And I've been trying to escape for a very long time, um, taking some sabbaticals, doing different things, trying to find a different path. 
And then last year, I went back to school to get my master's in writing um, at Bennington College. So I'm getting my MFA now, and that has allowed me to really do some deep thinking on why at a gut level, I've wanted to go a different direction um, than where I've been. And I know we'll get into this more detail, but it landed me in a warehouse job um, where I was confronted with fast fashion returns. And I ended up writing a piece um, that ended up in the New York Times. And through that, wow, I I mean, I got connected with you. I've been connected with (laughs) a lot of people who've been like working um, against fast fashion and I'm getting a huge education. And that's how how I've connected with you. Yeah, I, you know, the algorithm knows me well. Um, I am a New York (laughs) Times subscriber anyway, but I was, you know, this was served to me bright and early by the Apple News app on my phone. And I was just like, wow, like I, this is, I mean, I don't want to praise you too much because it gets really awkward, I know. But, you know, (laughs) you took what is a very complex and, kind of hidden problem for the majority of Americans, for the majority of the world. And you shared it so clearly, brought it right to their front door and made them aware of something in a way that I felt was very digestible Mm -hmm. and relatable and still nonetheless, I'm sure, very, very shocking. Yeah, I really appreciate that. That's definitely the feedback that I've gotten. I think um, one from people who are like me, who haven't thought about it too deeply mm-hmm. that they read the article and it and they it was Black Friday right when it came out so <laughs> they were timing. they were doing what we have been trained to do you sit yes. at your desk or you sit at your couch and you look for deals and it stopped them in their tracks um, which was wonderful to hear and then of course I've heard uh, from people like you who who have been really working to educate the public about um, this problem. And that's helped me just continue my education because I would say, even though I had this experience and wrote the article, I'm still a novice, um, in the subject compared to a lot of people who've been working on it for years and years and years. I mean, it's, it's a lot to learn. You know, I was telling you when we, in our pregame conversation that I've worked in this industry for decades now. And even I, did not know the reality of returns. And it was Mm -hmm. shocking for me to learn. And I learn more about it every day. And to be a person who's actively in that industry, managing the finances, managing the flow of these products in and out, to be completely siloed from what happens to the returned items is, I mean, that says to me that this is something that the industry doesn't want us to know. You know, that sounds really conspiracy theory, but... I think yeah. it it, uh, it takes a little bit of the fun party energy out of shopping, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I think that's completely part of it. I also think what happens, um, corporations get so big mm-hmm. and have so many arms and legs of different businesses, it's hard to keep up real time. And their job is to grow, right? We mm-hmm. live in a capitalist society and their job is to grow and our job is to consume. I mean, that's what Mm -hmm. we've been taught to do. Like when I started this journey, my initial question having worked and, and you'll, in this podcast, you'll hear me refer to the company I last worked for 
um, as an online superstore because I'm, I'm uh, required to do that. When I worked for their corporate office doing strategy work, what I found interesting about the company is that it is the only tech company that has warehouses. Like if you think of all these mm -hmm. tech companies like Facebook and Google, you know, they don't have a huge part of their business where there are hourly workers working in a warehouse. Mm -hmm. And because tech is so unique in terms of how they do business, like there, I'll just give an example. There's, um, you know, something called fast fails, which is let's just do projects as quick as possible to see if they'll stand up and succeed. Mm -hmm. And we will learn quickly what doesn't work and fix it, or we will abandon it. Now, that's fine in the corporate office, but think about that if you're working in the warehouse and processes are constantly changing. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, what actually happened is I listened, I listened to a podcast that was about a unionization effort, and it was pretty objective in that it gave both sides, um, the folks who wanted to unionize what was their thought, and then folks who were against it, but also the corporate point of view. And it just drove me to think about what's the reality, um, which is which is why I ended up taking the warehouse job. And it just so happened that the warehouse that I was assigned to was not your typical warehouse where you uh, take products that people have ordered and box them up and ship them out. It was what people send back, and mm -hmm. what they send back is mostly clothes. Uh, and the bulk of it was fast fashion. So uh, once I saw that um, and experienced sort of the horror story that fast fashion <laughs> is, I couldn't, I couldn't look away. I mean, I think that it is really interesting to think about, I mean, ultimately, all of these companies, no matter how big they are, they are they are learning from their mistakes just like humans are, right? Mm -hmm. And like, for example, at my previous job, it was a rental platform. And, you know, we everybody went in there with definitely the best intentions. And, you know, one important element of making it work from a financial perspective, but also making it work from a branding perspective and kind of giving us some exclusivity is that 50% of the clothing we were going to rent out needed to come from our sister brands. So we would get it really inexpensively, which was great for, you know, mm -hmm. making our P&L work. But it was also great because no one else could rent those brands anywhere else. So it was also great from a marketing perspective. And our entire P&L was built around this idea that everything would be rented 10 times. Mm. Which isn't really that much, really, when you think about it, right? Mm -hmm. That's not even in circulation for a year. And unfortunately... As we started to get into like really, okay, now we're launched. Now we really have a lot of customers. A lot of product is moving in and out of the warehouse. Uh, a lot of those items that were our, from our sister brands ended up needing to be damaged out after one rental. Mm. And it left us, I mean, one, that's really bad from a financial perspective. But even more yeah. importantly is it was leaving us with just like racks and racks and racks of clothing that needed to be damaged out. It was like yeah. defeating our plan of being sustainable, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, it was like, how do we pivot away from this? It's like you get yourself backed into a corner where, like, the financial reality of this is that we can't afford to make the P&L work with nicer clothes that last longer. Um, so, yeah. what do we, so what do we do, right? And I think 
a lot of retailers are in that same boat when it comes to e-commerce where they're like, oh, well, this is the first time in the history of humankind that you could buy a lot of clothes on the internet uh, and return them. <laughs> and <laughs> now we're seeing it play out in front of our eyes. Um, and I, I, I think it's another one where it's like, what's, there's no easy answer, which is unfortunately, you know, what a lot of, a lot of us want. That's what human humans are. We want, we want, this is wrong. This is right. This is fixed. You know, mm -hmm. this is broken. And it's really hard yeah. for me to see the quick fix here. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Cause it's, it is dependent on either the companies or the consumers or both. Right. 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 I mean, we're in a system that is about growing um, and there's pressure mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. on the company to grow. Like, I don't think most people going into the office are evil people with no. evil intentions. <laughs> um, but when you're in it, like when you're in the machine and your earnings calls coming up and you've got to show growth, there's that's a real pressure. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I mean, I honestly wish within that division of this online superstore that every one of those individuals could go and be a seasonal worker mm -hmm. in returns. Because I think when they'd see the quality of clothing um, that people are, are ordering and returning because no, I mean, very few people would want to wear it. They'd see the, the waste. I mean, the reality is to your point about, objects uh clothing being worn and then it's returned and it has to be uh it can't be sent back out again what i was seeing was clothing that somebody wouldn't even want to wear like the online representation of what they thought they were purchasing mm -hmm. versus what they would actually get the quality was so low in terms of items being very threadbare having no shape to them um, maybe having even been misrepresented. Mm -hmm. So for example, you'd get uh, a blouse that had one print on it and the color would be very different in the actual, or you'd get, um, as is in my article, a, a shirt that supposedly should have bat wing sleeves and it has teeny tiny <laughs> T-Rex <laughs> sleeves. Yeah. Uh, there just was so much of that. And you know, if I send it back out, you know, I had in this job, I had very prescribed parameters for evaluating each item of clothing and what could, what should be resold and what shouldn't. And poor quality was not on that list, right? And, and poor quality is subjective. Right. That's true. Right? That's true. So, yeah. But there were some items that I just thought they would get returned twice, you know, so somebody would have bought it. It would have been evaluated by someone like me when it was returned. They would have put it in a sellable bin, which gives the opportunity for another customer to buy it. And then they would see what crap it is and they would send it oh. back. And I'd, I'd have to decide if it was still in okay shape, I would need to put it in a sellable bin. And there were a few times when I just marked it unsellable. But then what I'm doing is, am I, am I sending it to, um, to be in some, junkyard mm -hmm. you know like someplace in the desert in chile you've i'm sure you've seen those pictures oh yes yes by marking it unsellable um yeah. or is it going to get there anyway but i'm going to add 
all this shipping back and forth, it was really a quandary. And it just, you know, it hit me that there is this whole system in place across the world of people working to have this clothing move globally that people think they want, but they really don't want when they get their hands on it. <laughs> and, and just what waste that is of both, yeah. you know, both people resources, right. Um, as well mm-hmm. as environmental resources. Absolutely. You know, and that, that raises the question because this is something I hear a lot when we talk about fast fashion as a whole. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I say fast fashion, I'm really at this point referring to the majority of things you can buy because that model mm-hmm. of consumption and production has, it's, it's infiltrated every, every consumer good. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe not cars. I don't know about cars, but, but in general, right. This idea of like more and more, faster, faster. And, you know, the, I don't know. I I don't want to say this is a defense, but this comes up a lot when we talk about like changing the way we consume clothing and all of these other things, buying less, using it longer, all of these important things. It always comes up as a question, well, what happens to the people who make these things if we stop buying mm-hmm. so much? And, you know, I would I would ask you, is processing returns a good job? Is it a job that we want to protect and continue to have? Yeah, so that's a great question. And, um, you know, I, I just had to send in my workshop piece for Bennington because I'm at residency in January. And one of the lines I have in my piece is it's, it's easy to contemplate capitalism when you already have the money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I because love that. it's true, right? Like on the right. one hand, I can have my opinion on it, certainly. But who am I to say? Because ultimately, I am not dependent on it. I'm housing secure, right? I have health care. Mm-hmm. Um, I will tell you that the relationships that I made in my very short time, um, six weeks, it was the seasonal um, job that I did. The two relationships that I made happened to be moms. We started on the same day and we're trained together and we have our break together every day. And their situation was they needed a job that was in the middle of the day when their kids were in school um, that was close to their home. And this one fit the bill and they, they seem mm-hmm. fine with it. Now I'll put some caveats on that, which is one, they knew I worked for corporate. Like I, I didn't, I wasn't mm. honest that I was writing about the situation, but they knew that I had worked at corporate and that I was back in school for writing and that I was mm-hmm. curious, you know, about what this job was like. So, you know, I do not know if they gave me a more rosy view um, of how mm-hmm. they felt. I think it might be different if I had, you know, been for a full year in a warehouse full time, I'd probably mm-hmm. have had a different experience. But I think so, so there's a book I read. There's an anthropologist. He actually, unfortunately, passed away last year from COVID. Um, but his name is David Graeber, and he writes a lot about economic systems. And one of his books that I actually read for school in this past year is called Bullshit Jobs. And he, <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great title. Putting he, it on my list right now. Yeah, it sounds right up my it's, alley. A, it's great too, and it's 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 not so academic. Like I can't read really dense academic and. He, so mm-hmm. he defines in that book a bullshit job as a form of employment that is so completely pointless, unnecessary, or pernicious that even the employee cannot justify its existence. 
And that's, that's kind of what I felt about mm-hmm. not only being in the warehouse and processing all these returns, because who the fast fashion was driving these jobs. But on the right. flip side, when I was at the corporate office, there was a lot of that happening too. Like, is this job really necessary? What does it benefit in the grand mm-hmm. scheme of things? When I watched, I, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have watched The True Cost, which is when I started this job and saw the fast fashion, I just all of a sudden started educating myself. So I was listening to podcasts in my car because I had a bit of a commute. And um, mm-hmm. of course, I watched True Cost. And in True Cost, you know, they're really focused on what's happening, of course, in Bangladesh and Vietnam. But they brought up that viewpoint of, from a capitalist standpoint, well, this can help people get out of poverty. And that to Westerners, these jobs may look awful, but the workers' alternatives are not necessarily our alternatives. But then what they asked in that movie is that we can't excuse low wages and unsafe conditions mm-hmm. because of that. Like, why can't we think bigger? Why can't we give people right. jobs that respect them as human beings? So I don't, you know, I can't speak for the people who were, who depend on this um, salary. But mm-hmm. my point of view would be like, we, we have to come up with something different because to keep this fast fashion just cycling from Bangladesh to a Seattle warehouse to a um, dump in the Atacami <laughs> desert does yeah. not make any sense. Agreed. Agreed. I mean, you said when we were talking before, I actually typed this up because I loved it so much. You said, how is putting someone to work on complete waste a good idea? Mm-hmm. And wow, I mean, that that really summarizes it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It's it's really, really sad, actually. Um, so you are in a very unique position that many people have never been in, which is to transition from the corporate side to the warehouse. I mean, you're getting the full the full experience, really. Mm-hmm. I guess the last thing would be for you to drive the delivery truck. Uh, maybe, <laughs> no maybe one would year. want that. No one would want that. <laughs> so I, I mean, I, you know, I actually started my career in buying in retail, working in the stores, and then transitioned to the home office as a buyer. So I got to see both sides of that as well, but in reverse order. And it brought me a lot of insights as a buyer that I wouldn't have had otherwise, for sure. Mm-hmm. What do you see as the disconnect between like the corporate vision and the actual warehouses? Mm, Good question. Well, you know, it's, it is not to say that there isn't a lot of thought Mm -hmm. that goes on um, in a corporate office of how to do things well at the warehouse and how to make things better for the workers. That said, you know, as I've mentioned, I think in tech, there just tends to be a bit of a disconnect because mm-hmm. the reality is, I mean, tech is driven by a lot of software engineers. Um, mm-hmm. Many of those software engineers happen to be young males. I mean, it just, it is a male dominated industry and they're really using data, machine learning, um, things that are happening on a computer in an office tower in a city to drive, for example, 
what's the rate of processing that a 65-year-old woman in an Alabama warehouse um, should process. And that's where I think the disconnects can happen. Like it is not to say data is a bad thing and you can't use data to help um, support your business, but there is a relationship aspect that's lost. So for example, in all the corporate work that I've done, probably the thing that's been best about the jobs have been the friendships, have been the people. Mm -hmm. And I have had lots of opportunity to build those relationships, you know, whether it's chatting or having lunch or happy hour, you really don't see that as much um, in my experience in the warehouse. And part of that may have been that it was seasonal, Mm -hmm. but you don't build those relationships. So it, it really becomes sort of this machinery without human element, even though it's all humans involved. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that would be a tough fix, right? Like, I think there are ways uh, to not make it driven as much by, oh, this app is going to tell me if I'm meeting my quota. Um there are ways to have more interactions with people. And, you know, an example would be, and again, I was seasonal, but each shift I had was a five-hour shift. And within a five-hour shift, you get a 15-minute break. Um, The area where we would take the break, it was quite a ways from where we did our work. So we needed five minutes to get there and get back. So that's 10 minutes to sit down and chat while you're trying to woof down a snack and then also go to the bathroom. <laughs> right. So I wouldn't say it was like the nightmares that I hear about some um, warehouses with the same employer in in my experience, but it, it wasn't enough time to form re- relationships. Like the two women that I sat with every day, mm-hmm. I realized after I left, I don't even know their last names. Wow. Um, and yet, you know, last week I had coffee with two friends that I made a the corporate office who I know their last names. I know the names of their spouses. I know the names of their kids. Um, So it's just a different experience. And some would say that that's intentional, right? Some would say, well, we don't want them to build relationships because then they'll organize. I don't, I don't know if that's the case. Um, I would hope not. Um, I mean, I think it's unintentional. I think it goes mm-hmm. back to what you were saying that, you know, the the people engineering these processes and systems are so disconnected from the actual work that's happening in the warehouse. And I only say that because at my last job, once again, for the rental company, it was the first time I had worked with engineers um, because I've worked in buying my whole career. And it's a very... It's not always the best environment, uh, but there are people that you don't like. There are people that you become great friends with. Everybody I worked with in buying had, with the exception of myself, had never worked in a store. So they were very Mm. disconnected from even how product would exist in the store. So that was a problem in itself. But working with the engineers was so interesting to me because it was the first time I'd worked with men in a significant way. It was like mm-hmm. a very, and they had a, such a different style of communication amongst themselves. And it didn't translate well with us uh, mm-hmm. because we were used to communicating in a different way. And there were times where I was like, wow, they're really rude or 
in, inhumane or what what have you. Um, and they were very disconnected even from how product would arrive or how it would work. And so like, for mm-hmm. example, uh, I told you this when we were preparing for this, you know, an engineer came over to me and said like, thank you so much for ruining my day. And he really meant it not in a sarcastic way, like, but he was like really angry at me yeah. because he had rev- he had shown us in a meeting this new system for receiving product and the it had one really major logical fallacy in it that you only know if you understand how the flow of product operates mm-hmm. and that was that it only it assumed that every order would arrive exactly as it had been ordered that if you ordered 100 larges you would get 100 larges you wouldn't get 98 or 105 and i said that orders only arrive exactly as they were written like 5% of the time. Mm. That's just how the industry works. But if you're not in that, but you're trying to program a system around it, you're going to miss that, right? I think what exacerbates that, because of course, I know you and I both agree, all engineers aren't bad people. <laughs> no, right? not at all. But no. what exacerbates it is, and my my son's in school right now for engineering, and um, the the expectation of speed, Oof, I bet. because these are publicly traded companies, mm-hmm. right? So they need to get the product out there quickly. Um, the speed really pushes, and that's I mean that's going to push throughout the system of the organization. So mm-hmm. the warehouses are going to feel it, yes, um, be, because they will. Um, so yeah, it's it's been an eye opening experience for me. I'm no doubt to just work on both ends of it is, I mean, j- what an amazing experience, you know, to see all the gray areas within there. Because I think if you haven't lived both sides of it, you it's easy to see one side as like the wrong side and one side as the good side. And it's really just complicated. You know, yeah, like for lack of a better adjective, yeah. right? And I can say yeah. that, like, working in the retail stores, I, I, I actually had incredible relationships with everybody I worked with. I really appreciated their company, and like working alongside of them was such a joy. There were a lot of policies that came down from corporate that felt really cruel uh, mm-hmm. and wrong and unethical, and some of them definitely were. But I think others were just like people having no concept of the humanity working in the store you know, and that we are just like a means to an end, right? Well, it is funny. Like it is this quandary, right? That, you know, all companies start off small Mm -hmm. and small business, we consider a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. And then they grow and grow and grow um, and start to be considered a bad thing because they lose the ability to have visibility over everything that's going on and they're under pressure to grow. Mm-hmm. And so poor decisions are made, whether intentional um, or whether not intentional. And it, I mean, of course, when you're in it, you see poor decisions being made, right? We've all experienced that. Um, but I think when I got out of it, I started to understand the larger perspective. Um, and I think, you know, I was this, Like I was a kid who grew up on this rural farm with hippie parents (laughs) where we didn't have a TV Mm -hmm. for a long period of time. We only had an outhouse. Wow. And like I was mortified as a child. Like I wanted, you know, potato chips in my lunch and (laughs) 
outfits from Nordstrom. Right, right. Um, I wanted to use Nair on my legs. Oh, well, no, you don't want that. <laughs> but at the, the, the time, like, I wanted convention. Right. And right. and it wasn't, I don't want to infer I had a bad childhood. I have amazing parents. It was a great childhood, but it wasn't how I wanted to live in this hippie lifestyle. And so it was very natural for me to gain convention by turning to a career in business and be part of that appetite for growth. Um, and I didn't see anything wrong with it for a long time. Like even if I disagreed uh, with a process or position that the company I worked for took, I still was driving the growth and happy to. And it really wasn't until I stepped away and 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 the fog cleared, right? Because I could think. <laughs> I understand that feeling so well. That's a great way to summarize it. Yeah. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. 
Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicwear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicwear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicwear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicwear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. The Pewter Thimble is a curated secondhand shop based out of Rome, Italy. Owner Desiree Marie Townley has a background in costuming and makeup for dance and opera and focuses on dressing for the character you want to be in the world. Curated collections are dropped in a story sale and always have a specialized theme, like the color palette of Starry Night, the film classic Casablanca, and the children's novel The Secret Garden. Desiree works with local artisans, and pieces are rescued from markets and rehabilitated and resold with worldwide shipping. The Pewter Thimble is a collection of pieces that will have eternal style from the Eternal City. Discover more on Instagram at The Pewter Thimble. Let's talk about returns and you know what you saw mm-hmm. um nothing you told me shocked me but i think it might be surprising to a lot of other people so one thing you touched on already was i don't know disappointing quality let's say or mm-hmm. misalignment with the images and i you know thinking about stuff being returned multiple times the same the same exact unit the same garment being returned mm-hmm. a couple times just curled my hair just like thinking about it but I was I was like wow you know I've even seen in the early days of my career and mind you this was a fast fashion employer even though fast fashion hadn't really taken off per se like we were we were on the cusp but but people probably would have thought we were like a a little bit more premium if you will but we did to Mm -hmm. be fair we had people in the warehouse who QA'd every shipment that came in. And if something Mm. had an egregious quality issue, the things that you're talking about where it doesn't match what we ordered, you can't get your leg in the pants, you know, like that kind of thing, it would be Mm -hmm. pulled, right? And then we would, you know, return it to the vendor. Now, naturally, I'm sure it was destroyed. It was a complete waste. But the idea there was, one, we don't want to sell stuff to our customers that is disappointing. And two, uh, we want to discipline these vendors into providing product that is good quality right so Mm -hmm. it made sense in that way and you know we didn't catch a lot of stuff because people were executing as they were but somewhere over time and i'm sure this was a cost-cutting measure 
It was also probably part of speeding up the process of getting product into the warehouse and out to the stores or onto the website. That team went away. Mm. And that's when you start to see really weird stuff showing up at people's houses or in stores. And, you know, thinking about an online superstore, there is no way that one, that any team could QA everything that's on that site. Right. I mean, it's, it's unfathomable. Well, the reality is there are all of these third-party sellers that are selling goods. um, And I mean, there, I definitely saw fast fashion from all parts of the world, but there tends to be a lot that's coming out of China with very odd names as if you, yeah, know. you and I were laughing so, about it before. It's just an assortment of consonants with a couple of vowels. Yeah. It's no language, actually. It's just a random, it's like it was generated by a computer. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Like a bot. Yeah. And it, I mean, you can tell, so like now I know, and I, you know, I, I definitely need to address my wardrobe and what I've purchased in the past. I don't specifically really purchase fast fashion, but I'm now every morning as I'm getting dressed, I look at the label mm-hmm. um, of, of the clothes. And I, you know, I'm in the Seattle area. We're like a jeans in Patagonia kind of place mostly, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I mean, like today, you know, I just have random stuff on everything I'm wearing. It was produced overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know yet whether it was ethically produced or not. I'm digging into that by listening to your podcast and going to the resources that you provide. Um, but I would say in this case, it, in my warehouse job, so much of what came across, you'd have a brand name online. The product would look so much better online than it did in person. And then in in some cases, the brand name, that label was actually not even on the item. Wow. Um, which is general you know, it's generally always on yeah. the item somewhere. But it's it must be produced just so quickly and it's so low quality. Um and so imagine being that customer where you're picking out something online and it has a specific look and a brand and then you get it and it's unraveling. It looks like it's going to disintegrate in a week. Yeah. It's um, a shoe that has no flexibility to it. And even though you ordered a size eight, it actually looks like a size five because the sizes don't translate. <laughs> uh, there's just, there was so much of that. Um, Halloween costumes. Like I was, oh. I was working during Halloween. So you'd have people who'd order a bunch of costumes in different sizes to see what fit. And then you know how they come in those, generally those like plastic bags with the cardboard picture of the costume. Oh yeah. I the can costume smell would them. be just <laughs> stuffed back in, yeah. right? Like a complete disaster. Um, and I'd need to decide whether it could be resold or not. And could <sighs> I, you know, I don't have irons to make it pretty. Again. Right, right. <laughs> I have to do the best I can with a lint brush. Um, and just my folding techniques, which are, are not stellar actually. (laughs) Uh, yeah. And then, I mean, other things I'd get, like, um, the first time I got a wig. Oh my God. uh, You know, rigs. What a mess. 
Yes. Yeah. So I actually, it was the first time I got a wig. So I called the manager over. You like hit this button to get the manager. So I called the manager on duty over and like, I have the wig. It's this long wig with it's brunette, but it has all these blonde highlights in it. Um, and I'm literally like holding it on my fist, you know? So when he comes over, I like nod at him with it, you Uh know, kind of being campy and, I'm like, can these be resold? And he says to me, check if there's glue inside and if anything's crawling. <gasps> oh. <laughs> and I dropped the wig to the table. And I mean, I think he was half joking, mm-hmm. but I don't think he was completely joking. Right. Um, and there was no glue inside and nothing was crawling. So I boxed it up to resell. Like, who wants that? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I yeah. guess it's good that maybe someone else will use it, but I can't help but mm-hmm. guess that odds are high that it's going to come back again. You know. Yes. Yeah. And that that is the problem. Is I mean, in the time that I was there, you know, it's hard to say if it was the exact item, but I would see an item at the beginning of my time that had been returned and toward the end of my time, a very similar item would come back. Um, and it, the system tells you if it's been returned twice, because mm-hmm. you, you know, are supposed to take a closer look at it. Um, the customer comments are, you know, are kind of gold because <laughs> people come from all different oh, I know, bet they're fine. Uh, places. Yeah. And sometimes it's just simply, you know, crappy quality not how it looks online, not the same color. And sometimes people are like above and beyond. There are, you know, plenty of people with profanity. Um, (laughs) And then there would be people who, you know, very like kind, like I loved it, but it's not the right size. So I'm returning Mm, it. mm -hmm. Um, And you don't know what the reality is, but uh, yeah, it, it, it is overwhelming just the level of poor quality pieces. Yeah, I mean, this this does not surprise me. And like with this primarily being third-party sellers, there's really mm-hmm. no way of filtering it out for the online superstore. You know what I mean? Like there's too much. Yeah, there should be. Um, I don't know what that is because I didn't work in that division. Mm-hmm. Um but I, you know, I would imagine if you look at the PR announcements that there is a process <laughs> in place, um, right. but clearly we're falling down on it. And, and it's not just this company, right? It's, um, it's no, Shein it's... and H&M and all, all these companies that are doing, doing the same thing. I mean, I had never heard of haul videos until... I started this job and started to look into it and saw all these Shein Hall videos. And I'm like, what? Oh my goodness. What is I know. this? I know. I know. And I wonder what happens if someone returns something to Shein. I've never bought anything from them. But, mm-hmm. you know, when you, I, I don't know if you've ever gone on the Shein website, but it's almost so confusing to even figure out how much something's going to cost until you pay for it because there are so many promotions and mm-hmm. timers about when this deal is mm-hmm. ending. And it really incentivizes you to just go for it and get a bunch of stuff, yeah. you know, and the way Shein and some of these other like ultra fast fashion companies are churning out product, there's absolutely no way for them to QA at all, 
to uh, make decisions. I mean, I know that Sheehan is like famous for using data to make decisions about product, but I'm sure lots of bloopers come through, right? Mm -hmm. I even think there was a few years ago, I went through a phase where I was ordering a lot of clothes from Zara because I was like depressed. I was having a really hard time at work. And so I would just place these Zara orders regularly. And what finally like broke me of it is I got a box and I put on a pair of pants. They were adult size pants and my foot wouldn't even fit into the leg hole Mm, at all. Yeah. Uh, like just wouldn't even fit in. And so it's not even like I could put the pants on. And my husband was like, well, maybe they're children's pants. And I was like, these are not children's pants. These are adult <laughs> pants, you know? And I just, I think that there was this moment for me that was like, Zara doesn't care what they sell me, you mm-hmm. know? Like they, they sent me these pants that I can't put my foot in. Yeah. Like, th- like I'm, I'm done with them. You know, like yeah. this is the end for me. And I, d- you know, these are such complicated problems to solve. Mm-hmm. I do think, you know, a lot of the responsibility lies on these companies, but also lies on us as consumers. Like if someone keeps selling you something that is crap, stop buying stuff from them. Yeah. Because the only job I've had where we really, really, really looked at reviews and returns and allowed them to steer our decisions as they should was when I worked at ModCloth. And if something had below a four-star rating in the reviews, we would never reorder it. Mm. If we saw a lot of returns, we would immediately pull samples from the warehouse and try to figure out where it was going wrong and have conversations with the vendor and make sure something like that never happened again. That was a company that had a lot of a lot of product. I mean, I think at one point we had 600 dresses alone on the website and we were able to make it work, but that is still tiny. So tiny in comparison to a lot of these platforms. Well, I mean, the other thing that I ran into, because Shein is is a third-party seller on this Mm -hmm. online warehouse, so I did see a lot of Shein, but um, I wasn't... Okay, so my really bad habit um, for you and your listeners to know is that I like really bad reality TV. Me too. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I was watching a really bad reality TV show. And one of the people on it talked about how they never wear the same outfit twice. Oh, gross. Uh, yes. And then they had, you know, at the end of every season of these shows, like they talk to everybody and, you know, get them on a couch and talk through what happened that season. So uh, that came up in that debrief. And the woman was sort of like, well, I don't know if I should say because I might get into trouble. Well, it turns out she was wardrobing. Um, so oh, buying things online, okay, let's, let's wearing about wardrobing. them, yeah, and sending them back. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, like I can't know for sure what the intention of the purchaser was when I got products back, but there just seemed to be this routine of seeing items that were being wardrobe because you know, like part of my job is to look for um, whether there is any deodorant stains mm-hmm. on the article of clothing or any stains at all. And man, the number of, I didn't know the word body con for body conscious <laughs> before I started this job. Right. Uh, the number of body con dresses, uh-huh. uh, a lot of them like, you know, with the ruching um, in very small sizes were just sent back constantly. <laughs> and like, if they had a tag, the tag would have been ripped off. 
there'd be deodorant stains uh, like those those and those you don't resell right they go mm-hmm. directly to the unsellable bin and potentially end up in a landfill um mm-hmm. so i think the wardrobing and certainly there is uh there was a selection for fraud but it's hard to know when a customer has done fraud there were a few instances where it was super clear like Right. Returned an old threadbare t-shirt instead of the new one that was ordered. Mm -hmm. Um, But in many cases, you don't know. So, for example, uh, one of the items that I got back was a it was a set of pajama top and bottom. And all that came back was the top. Oh, but so was that customer deceitful or disorganized I disorganized yeah you just don't know (laughs) so it's on the uh, definitely on the wardrobing it it is hard to claim that a customer is being fraudulent because there's there's no proof for it yeah I at one of my jobs we were a pretty small startup and we were always shorthanded always right because it was about you know trying to get the most out of every person who worked on the team and so sometimes my team and I would process returns because we were like, we have to get this product back to the warehouse. And even then, I there were a lot, this is before I knew the term wardrobing, before it even occurred to me that someone would buy a lot of clothes, wear them once, and then return them. Like, to me, this mm-hmm. was just I, an unknown world to me. And I kept processing things where I was like, I think this person wore this. Like, not just tried it on or walked around the house in it. Like, wore it out. Like, this has soup all over it, or this mm-hmm. smells really bad. Or, you know, I told you that my husband bought a returned jacket from REI and in the pocket was a Wendy's receipt. <laughs> I mean, like clearly had been yeah. worn, you know? Yeah. Um, and I just, I, which is like fine. It's basically just a secondhand jacket and he loves it and he's been wearing it like every day since he got it. But <laughs> it's like, I don't want to fault people for abusing the system per se, but I also want to say like, why don't we dismantle the expectation that you should wear something new every day and actually mm-hmm. make that not 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 a good thing? Yeah, absolutely. And and I have to say that is the thing I love about what you do is you meet people where they are versus shaming them, yeah. um, uh, which is totally the journey that that I'm on right now. But I so shortly after the article came out you know, a number of people reached out to me and one um, is a, a writer by the name of uh, Patsy Perry, who forwarded to me a fast fashion article that she wrote for the conversation. Mm-hmm. And it's completely about that wardrobing uh, issue. And I just, I found it so interesting because the article came out on Black Friday and she has a data point in her piece that says that one third of all Black Friday spend is fashion, mm-hmm. um, which is a huge amount. And that uh, these, you know, these different systems, which are also on this online superstore that allow you to pay in increments no. versus at one time. Yep drive up the sales. Now this, I mean, this gets into a really sticky area, right? Because um, I, at least right now, <laughs> um, can afford to go out and, and get uh, 
you know, if we assume something like Patagonia is responsible and, you know, I don't know if that's marketing or it is, that's things I'm trying to learn now. Mm-hmm. I can afford to go out and buy that shirt. Right. Um, the people that I worked with at the warehouse that are making 1875 an hour, I don't know that they can. So I'm not saying that these systems that are in place to help people pay are necessarily bad or good. I think unless I was like in that system, I wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does drive up the consumerism that is already really rampant um, in our country. I definitely have a lot of concerns about those buy now, pay later services. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we're going to see more and more discussion about that in the next year, for sure, especially as people are really feeling the crunch of inflation and everything else Mm -hmm. that's going on right now. And more and more people are going to be using those services. But, you know, they've been around the longest in the UK, actually. And the UK this year is really starting to say like, okay, we need to have more regulation here. These are having a really negative impact on the financial situation, specifically of young people, because those are the people who have used them most. And it's no coincidence that it's the most youth-oriented retailers that adopted these first, both here in the United States and in the mm. UK. Um, it freaks me out. You know, at, at my current job, we had a conversation a couple months ago about should we start integrating one of those platforms because it would drive conversion, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I don't, I don't want us to be on the wrong side of history here, and I – I feel like there's something inherently predatory about these. They're totally fine as long as you pay on time. But if you don't, things go sideways pretty fast. And the penalties for paying late might seem like a small dollar amount to us. But if you make Mm -hmm. $18 an hour, $15 an hour, $12 an hour, they're bad. They're they're really, really bad. And they can spiral. And I'm really grateful that those services did not exist when I was a teenager or in my 20s, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it tells you, like, all these problems are interconnected, Mm -hmm. right? So the fact that you have low-wage earners who are taking advantage of these programs because they're low-wage earners. Right. Yeah, and I don't, I mean, to your point earlier, it's complex. Like, do you blow it all up and start from scratch? What do you do? (laughs) I don't know, but this... I mean, how I'm really spending these two years to get this grad degree is asking those questions and sort of standing in the mirror, right, Mm -hmm. versus sitting on my couch watching my choice of news and just nodding along. I'm trying to put out there with different experiences to really question my positions. And as you, you know, said earlier, just like live in the gray more. Mm-hmm. versus feeling this is black and white. Um, so evolving. I'm an evolving human, <laughs> like all of us. I mean, we all are. <laughs> I think, I mean, it's the same for me as I think part of this is like growing older, but it's also learning more and taking that space to think about these things. Even in the beginning of working on close horse, it's like I wanted there to be a right and a wrong answer. Mm-hmm. And I would I would feel frustrated that there wasn't, you know, that I would get myself into sort of like thinking myself into circles, trying to find the answer because there's, but there is no simple answer to all of this because unfortunately there is like no on off switch for society where we can just reboot it. Like things are going to take time. 
and they're going to take change from everyone. They're going to take a lot of effort or they're not going to happen at all. And I think that so many people shut down. You know, it's mm-hmm. like that saying like, oh, well, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. So I may as well just like, you know, go buy a Keurig or whatever. Yeah. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, <laughs> put the brakes on there. Okay. That's not the frustration of it all. The complexity of it all isn't meant to just make you shut down and go back to watching the nightly news on the couch and, you know, ordering stuff online all day, all night. Like, that's not that's not the point of it. Yeah, it's accepting that despair is not an option. Right, despair is not an option, unfortunately. (laughs) And I see that a lot on social media. I see a lot of it on Reddit who are like, well, the world's going to end soon, so I'm like, whatever. And like, no, no, don't do that. (laughs) Well, and I think that's good about what you do, right? Because you are putting information out there, but not in a super negative way. And as I said earlier, meeting people where they are, like, Mm-hmm. I think in one of your podcasts that I listened to, there was a lot of talk about beige hemp clothing and <laughs> mostly to the degree of you don't have to wear that no. to start being responsible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh. you know, I actually received a really nice email from someone today who specifically was like, your conversation about beige hemp clothing <laughs> and not having to wear it had a major impact on me. Yeah. And I was like, good you know i think that we have there's a lot there's a lot for us to think about there's mm-hmm. a lot for us to process but like as long as we're all working on that and thinking about that and accepting these gray areas and working within them yeah. rather than being defeated yes we will get into maybe a less gray area down the road yeah i think for me because i so even after having this experience you know in my normal life i'm not I wasn't really buying fast fashion anyway, but what Mm -hmm. it's done for me is to have me just look at consumption in general in my own life. So Mm -hmm. for example, like a lot of writers, (laughs) I'm a huge (laughs) Joan Didion fan and you know, she passed away this year and there was an auction of her personal items. So like, crazy things like a little jar of seashells, um, old glasses that she had worn that were broken. Uh, there are, was a stack of Creole cookbooks that were like stained and old. And when I first heard of the auction, what do you think my initial reaction was? You wanted it at all. What could I buy? Yeah. Yes. What could I buy? <laughs> and then I, I just started investigating like, why was that my initial response? Like, I have seashells. I live in Seattle. <laughs> like, why do I need Joan Didion's seashell? Are they going to make it, you know, me magical in terms of my writing? <laughs> um, so it really was eye-opening for me that we're just so programmed to knee-jerk consume. Yeah. And the reality was, Amanda, I wouldn't have been able to buy anything because even though I had decided, yeah, you're not going to succumb to this, I was very curious and I watched the auction and those Uh seashells went for $7,000. What? I mean, I guess I'm not surprised, but wow, that's that's a high profit margin on those those seashells. Yeah. No, I think that's a really great call out. You know, something I've been thinking about a lot, which is really going to be a big focus of my intellectual energy for next year, for 2023. So by the time everyone hears this, it will be this year, uh, is thinking about how we can start to untangle those behaviors that are just programmed into us around consumption. Because I think that's where it starts. And the reality is that we, 
have been made this way, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think about I think about toys and the way they were sold to us so rapid fire and everywhere around us as children. I had a conversation with a friend recently. She said we were talking about collecting stickers as kids, and she said, "Yep, stickers. How we all learned how to be good hoarders and consumers as adults." <laughs> and I was like, "Wow, you're right." Because stickers were like, "Oh, I need more and more and more." Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't feel like terribly impactful either way, like financially at least. And then what happened to the stickers when we were done with them? You know, mm-hmm. I, it it just was, you know, sim- stickers a simpler time for sure. But it did get you hooked on this idea of having something new, of needing more stuff, of taking pride in how much you had. Yeah. And these are things that we are going to have to work really hard to dismantle within ourselves because it's been programmed in there in a lot of ways. I mean, I grew up in the era of like so many teen magazines that were all basically an ad, even if they seem to be articles in there, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, like that really pushed in this idea of like, I need a lot of makeup. I need a lot of clothes. I need to dress this way for that, but then I need different clothes for this other thing. I need different shoes for different events. There's a whole desk to dinner, whatever. All the nonsense yeah. that we've been sold over the years, it's all in there. And I, I catch myself in the same way. I had a horrible day at work this week. I cried, which is not something that happens mm-hmm. a lot for me after work. And I was like, I should buy something to make myself feel better. And yeah. I was like, whoa, wait, no, no, you shouldn't. But I was like on the internet, like, what am I going to buy to make myself feel better? And then I was like, no, oh. no, what you should do is go to therapy. Or get a new job or whatever. Get some sleep. Yeah. Journal your feelings. <laughs> exactly. Take a bubble Call bath. your friend and talk about it. Yeah. Exactly. So there is there is another um, writer that I love, Eula Biss, and uh, her latest book is called Having and Being Had. And it's, it's all about um, capitalism. And in it, she reminds the reader that consumption was once the name of <laughs> a wasting disease. You know, which was tuberculosis. Yeah. <laughs> so it, I mean, it is good to just continue to keep that in mind that what does it kind of turn us into when we just consume, consume, consume? Um, and I'm, I'm smart. not, I mean, I'm completely complicit. You know, Christmas this year was like, we always have a white elephant and it's, it's just all junk, Yeah, you know, and wasteful. And I tried to, kill the elephant uh, I host. I've tried to kill the elephant for a couple of years and everybody's like, no, oh, no yeah. and we have killed it for this year with the understanding that we will reconsider whether to bring it back next year. <laughs> um, but it's just really easy to just fall into these patterns. Yeah, it is. It's really easy to fall into these patterns, but I think step one is recognizing them. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like when I'm, when I'm teaching people on my team about how to like analyze their business and make decisions. I'm always like, okay, the what is what the data tells you or the realization you have from looking at this. The now what is taking Mm. what you've realized and do taking action with it. And I think it's the same way with our journey around as consumers, as members of our families and our communities. It's about saying like, okay, I know this now. I'm armed with this information. What am I going to do? to make change out of that. Yeah. And it's okay to not have all the answers. It's right. right. Like it's okay. It's just more about being cognizant of 
to be open to question, is this knee-jerk response I should be having and, and interrogating why am I having it um, so that you can really go deeper uh, to start to think about then, okay, I'm going to get educated to see what I can do to your point to then change behavior. Yep. Yep. 100%. This has been such a great conversation, Rachel. I had such a great time. <laughs> Thank you. Me too. Uh, what are you working on next? So you just handed in something else for workshop. What else is coming up for you? So this whole kind of focus of living in the gray and putting myself in different situations um, to see if I can find a middle ground is what I'm focused on. My thesis needs to be done over the next semester. So I've done things like um, going to do trail work with people who have a different political, um, different Oof. political beliefs than me to, okay. to just talk through things and see if I'm there sure can be was, some understanding. I'm sure that was challenging. It, you know, it was really interesting because it also taught me about um, what I bring to the table, what mm. my assumptions are. Mm -hmm. Like if someone says that they don't believe in protecting um, an endangered animal, for example. This is one of the things that come up. I automatically think, oh, they're this person. They vote for this person. They belong to this party. Um, and what I learned is, which is, of course, obvious, right, <laughs> is that we contain multitudes. We do. We do. People can have a number of different opinions on different issues, and it doesn't automatically put you in one camp. So it actually was more eye-opening for me and um, the knee-jerk assumptions that I make. Um, I've done writing on for this project on water rights, for example, mm -hmm. um, because the place that I spend a lot of time in rural Oregon, um, that's an issue there. And we actually, we have um, property along a river. So we have water, but other people don't. So how, you know, how can people really own water? <laughs> um, so, I mean, this is kind of what I'm doing is just looking at this vast array of issues. Uh, and instead of taking a black or white position, trying to find the gray in it and seeing if I can expand um, myself. And certainly the reading that sort of started this whole chapter of me going into the warehouse um, Barbara Aaron, Rich's nickel and dimed. She also, she passed away in September, um, is just a great, great book, um, for any of your listeners who haven't read it. I'm sure most people have read it. Um, it's a great book. Yeah. Highly recommended. Yeah. To just, because it is all about, and not everybody can do this, right. But, um, where you can putting yourself in another person's shoes and just observing and not making judgments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great, I'm going to put together a whole reading list based on your recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is pretty much all I'm doing right now is reading, writing, and then having these experiences, which is, I mean, this, is, it's a gift, right. To be able to go back yeah. to school at my age and, um, the clock's unfortunately ticking down and I'm going to have to find a way to make a living again. And I mean, part <laughs> of me thinks I'm, you know, a green, 
to have the conversation with you and keep talking about this stuff is a way to make sure that corporate America won't actually ever hire me again so that I have to come <laughs> up with a different solution. <laughs> I mean, I think that's really interesting of me to tell you that was my strategy with Close Horse for sure. <laughs> I was like, I'm forcing the hand that I'm never going to have to go work for, you know, like any of these fast fashion employers I've had in the past. And fortunately, they that seems to be working. So (laughs) I applaud this decision. Yes. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Rachel. I can't wait for everybody to hear this conversation. Thanks, Amanda. I really appreciate it. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer, but Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro business. She's the one woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. 
We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play, not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at HighEnergyVintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. Thank you to Rachel for spending some time with me. It was an absolute pleasure. And I think I could talk to her for hours every week. It was just so great. I, I mean, I talked to her before Christmas and I'm still smiling about it. It was such a joy to edit this conversation. Hopefully Rachel will return for a visit when she has finished her next project. Hint, hint. In the meantime, you can follow Rachel's journey into the gray areas on Instagram at Rachel underscore Greenly underscore words. I'll be sharing that link in the show notes, so don't worry. Along with her essay and all of her amazing reading recommendations, they're all five-star suggestions. I will also be sharing more information about Earth Logic. So basically what I'm saying is there, there's a lot of homework this week in the show notes. <laughs> now we are finishing up this episode, which means it is that time again when I remind you of just how powerful we are as a community. We all have an impact on the planet and the people around us. And I have two huge examples for you. Number one is Amazon. Amazon wouldn't be the massive juggernaut that it is if everyone hadn't started shopping with them regularly. I know, yes, me, I was a part of that. It started with, you know, well, I don't have a car and I need to get cat litter. 
And over time, it turned into, okay, well, it's also where I buy vitamins, soap, sheets, shampoo, etc. Multiply that behavior by millions of people, and suddenly, you have Amazon as the biggest retailer of clothing and many other things here in the United States, really changing the landscape of where we shop and what we buy and who gets to sell to us. But it wouldn't continue going if we weren't shopping there, right? So Amazon grew because we grew along with it. Okay, maybe Amazon isn't your favorite example. So how about this one? Example number two, let's talk about, this is my favorite one to go off on, Keurig machines. You already know how how I feel about those. Also, let's be honest, the coffee that they make is just not that tasty. I've tried. I've tried in in a Holiday Inn to lean into the the magic of the Keurig, certainly in all of the uh, La Quintas I've stayed in and whatnot. But if you've never heard of a Keurig machine, bless you, they are these instant-ish coffee machines that brew single cups of coffee or tea using these little plastic cups. Like you basically stick the cup in the machine, you add some water, you push a button and a beverage comes out. These cups are ostensibly disposable, but we know that nothing is truly disposable. Um, And of course, these plastic cups, they're called K-cups, are not disposable, right? In fact, even in their best situation, only about a third of them are recycled. About 25% of American homes use a Keurig. Most use them multiple times a day. That's 75 million households using these K-cups and then maybe even using them multiple times per day. It's no surprise when you hear that, that the amount of K-cups trashed into landfills could wrap around the planet more than 10 times. Here's the thing. Yeah, it sucks that places like Kohl's only offer Keurig machines. Yeah, I know because I looked because I needed a coffee grinder and it was just aisle after aisle of Keurigs. It sucks that you can buy Keurigs and pods and all the other things from Amazon. You can get the K-cups really just about anywhere now. They have like pallets of them at Costco. You could probably get them on subscription from any number of services. It It feels, you know, unfair that so many of these Plastic cups and the machines that go with them are for sale right now. It infuriates me that companies continue to create these little non-recyclable cups when there are many far less wasteful ways to make coffee. And yeah, Keurig is working on a take-back program. Other companies are working on compostable cups. But at its core, the Keurigification of coffee creates an awful lot of waste. So yeah. It sucks that Keurigs are so profitable and companies keep selling them to us. But here's the thing. We, the collective we, I'm not saying you did, I don't own one of these, but the collective we, we made Keurig popular. 25% of American homes bought one or two or gave them as gifts, tossed out their regular coffee makers, which were probably totally fine condition, had years of use left in them, just got rid of them or donated them because people loved the convenience of Keurig. They thought it was like less messy. It was just so easy. You can make one cup at a time. 
and they bought into it. And they continued, they continue to buy into it. There were enough K-cups in landfills to wrap around the planet more than 10 times because people bought and used that many of them. Sure, Amazon sold them to us. Sure, Kohl's sold them to us. Sure, Costco's like, hey, you want a pallet of these K-cups? Yes, companies cashed in on it, but we said, yes, please take our money and we will take the Keurigs with us. We could have stuck with a regular old Mr. Coffee with a filter, a bag of Folgers or whatever. We could have gone the pour over route. We could have had instant Nescafe, but consumers, us, the we, chose Keurig and companies leaned into it. Remember, they're, they're looking for growth year over year over year. And here we are. We're sending them a clear signal that if you want to sell us more stuff, get some Keurig stuff involved, right? And so companies leaned into it. They made more types of machines. They created new variations and flavors in the coffees. And we, the customers, we kept on shopping. We said, oh, did you know that you can get a mocha flavor now? Hotels bought them because customers asked for them. You know, like offices have them because employees said, oh, I have this at home and it's great. Conversely, employees who didn't have one at home came into work and used it and then bought one for at home. I mean, like we all loved it. Once again, the collective we, not specifically saying you, not specifically saying me, but to be fair, lots and lots of people bought into it. And perhaps you are listening to me say this right now and nodding your head because you did too. Here's the thing. If Keurig had hit the market and no one liked it, thought that it seemed kind of dumb and wasteful, maybe they had to admit that the coffee was kind of meh at best, that would have been the end. No K-cups wrapping around the earth. Retailers and manufacturers, they would have moved on to something else. That's how much power consumers have. That's how much power we have. That's the collective we, once again, including you and me. We get to say what gets made, how much it costs, and how long it sticks around as a popular item. Because if we buy it, they will make more and they will make exponentially more because they need to hit that growth, right? And so when we give them a clear signal that we like something or don't like something, they're gonna run with it. That's why I believe that we have the power to move things in another more sustainable more ethical direction. Because I have seen our collective consumption habits create entire trends, industries, companies, and a ring, a 10 times ring of curry cups around the planet. This is where progress, not perfection, comes into play. First, don't go throughout your Keurig machine tomorrow because that is super wasteful. Think about how you can make some progress there with like reusable cups, refillable cups, compostable cups, what have you. Next, it's important that we acknowledge and accept that we are not set up for an easy, best, or perfect choice. That is so important. That said, we can't surrender to it and give up and just double down on our Keurig consumption, right? That's that's not an option or shift only to shopping from Amazon because like, why bother? The world's on fire. It sounds wild to me to say that out loud, but I can assure you I receive so many messages and see so many comments all across social media to that effect. Why bother? We can't change it. We can. 
change it. We can make decisions. We can assume the responsibility for the lifespan of the things we buy. We can know that nothing is actually disposable. We can buy less. Oh, it's so important. Buying less. All of these things, all of these changes that we make on a personal level are impactful, especially when we are modeling this behavior for those around us and educating others about why we do it. Significant change will require a larger societal behavioral shift. We saw how it played out with Keurigs and the rise of Amazon. Those are significant shifts, significant social shifts. All of this starts with us. Social trends start with a few, they spread through to more and more groups until they become second nature for everyone. And we can do it. One person can't change the world alone, but real change will happen when we work together. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Written, researched, edited, hosted, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing, of course, I would love if you would leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts. You can just throw a couple stars in there or actually write out your thoughts. Whatever feels right for you. But more importantly, please tell your friends. Get them to listen to Close Horse or get them to follow Close Horse on Instagram. It's kind of a gateway drug to the podcast. If you'd like to support my work financially, you can learn more at patreon.com slash clotheshorsepodcast. And thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support. Bye. (laughs) 